Please be seated. Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34 and verses 54 through 62. Please follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen above me. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34 and verses 54 through 62. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. Verse 54, then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman. I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. You know, ever since I've moved here, I've become more aware of my West Coast Canadian accent. Did you catch it? It's usually subtle. I try to hide it. It comes out, you know, when I say, hey, how's it going? Instead of, hey, how's it going? Or, oh, there's no doubt about it. Those who are, 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 are um, astute will catch it coming up in my conversations, like Kristen's parents who are with us this morning. Her dad, um, uh, Tom, right? Tom said, after the second sentence, are you Canadian? I was like, well, how did you know? It's because, for sure. In fact, Julie and I have a spreadsheet that we've started uh, to keep track of vocabulary differences depending on which part of North America we're in. For instance, here, we take out the trash, not the garbage. And when we get hot, we turn up, no, turn down the AC, not the aircon. We drink soda here, not pop. And Evan, our son, is in the 11th grade, not grade 11. <laughs> so when you notice these things in my speech, uh, please don't feel awkward when you bring them up. I, I'm a nerd, so I enjoy talking about them. But occasionally, the, and so when I notice these differences, they're really more for communication purposes. I try not to distract from what is being said, 
with how it's being said. But occasionally, I must admit, my awareness of what's going on is, of, this, of these differences is because occasionally, I'm really conscious of how people are perceiving me. I don't want my vocabulary or my accent to stick out so that I'll be accepted in whatever social setting I'm in. And if it does come up, things are going on inside, underneath. How do people see me? Will people accept me? Or will it get in the way? Or will the difference serve as a point of mutual learning in that interaction? At the heart of this dilemma is, will I be accepted or will I be rejected? And how will I be seen by others? You know, as we celebrate Palm Sunday today, we connect the story of Jesus' triumphal entry that the kids helped us celebrate to these final moments before Jesus' arrest and eventual crucifixion just a few days after. We see the rapid swing from adulation and celebration to rejection and loneliness. And through this holy hardship sermon series in Lent, we have been looking at the gospel readings through the lectionary to help us see how God often uses difficult circumstances to do the work of formation in our lives. In Luke 22, as uh, Ana Laura helped read for us, we focus particularly on Peter and on Jesus' interaction. The, the scene zooms in from this wide crowd at large into a sole individual response. We look at Peter's bold and confident uh, assertion of loyalty to Jesus that turns very quickly into a bold and confident denial of Jesus. What is going on here? And what does Peter's response to Jesus illuminate in our lives? You know, as Luke leads our eyes to the foot of the cross, he means us to feel not just sorrow and pity, but shame. Shame not for who we are, but for the ways that we often betray and reject Jesus because of our imposed expectations on Jesus. So we're going to walk through this in three stages as usual. Misplacing our attention, removing our lenses, and seeing through Jesus' eyes. Misplacing, replacing, and seeing. You know, like the scene we just looked at uh, last week when Jesus arrives in Bethany, this scene also takes place around a meal. This time it's the last meal the disciples are going to have with Jesus. At least the last meal with him as they know him right now. It's a final meal where Jesus talks about his betrayal. Talks about greatness. He talks about uh, what's going to happen. He talks about servanthood. And then he talks about something about these disciples getting thrones in the kingdom of heaven. It seems like kind of all over the place. If you add John's lengthy discourse, like you're like, whoa, what's going on here? The disciples are listening to Jesus, these final words from their beloved teacher, and they're trying to reconcile their expectations of him with what he is saying. They experience, expected him with all the miracles that he's performed, all the teaching that he's done that's gathered thousands, in light of all the crowds that are waving their palm branches at Jesus, welcoming him into the city as a king and as a leader, they expected Jesus to lead them into greatness, into political greatness. They expected God's promises to Israel to be fulfilled. 
that the land would be restored to their control and that Israel would become a crowning nation amongst all nations. And Jesus here, Jesus was here in their minds to make Israel great again. Then we come to verse 31. And Jesus turns to Peter. He turns to him with an encouragement first, but is prefaced with a warning. The warning is, is that things are going to get difficult here if you're following me. There's going to be a sifting to separate the wheat from the chaff. And it's going to shake all of you, not just Peter. It's going to be hard. Yet Jesus encourages Peter with a calling and the assurance that Jesus is praying for Peter and that his faith will not fail because Jesus is praying for him. And Jesus calls on Peter to lead and strengthen his brothers. Now, despite speaking very clearly to Peter, it seems that Jesus and the disciples are always communicating on different wavelengths. Jesus says one thing, but Peter hears something else and responds. What does he say? Oh, Jesus, I hear you, but I am willing to go to prison and go to death for you. See, Peter has in his mind that Jesus is going to call him to action. Peter boldly states he's ready to be persecuted and jailed and even martyred out of loyalty to Jesus. Peter hears Jesus, but what he hears is filtered through what's important to him. Peter has rebel uprising in mind. Peter has justice for the oppressed Israel under Roman occupation in mind. Peter has a very particular view of Israel's greatness in mind. And for Peter, Jesus' words are filtered through Peter's priorities. Do you know anyone who does that? <laughs> Jesus is calling Peter to action. And Jesus is thinking of justice for the oppressed. And Jesus does have Israel's greatness in mind. But Jesus happens to be bringing them in a very different manner and according to a very different timeline than Peter had ever expected. You know, how often do we find ourselves in Peter's shoes? In our excitement, we boldly declare loyalty to Jesus. Oh, yes, we love you, Jesus. You are everything. We come to Jesus with our expectations. We come to Jesus with our priorities and our passions. And when Jesus shows up, we impose our expectations on him and celebrate like the crowds, welcoming him on Palm Sunday. We say, yay, Jesus is here. Jesus is on my side. This is the big deal for me, Jesus. I can't see anything else but this big deal. And I don't know why others don't see this big deal, but you see it, Jesus, right? And Jesus, you know what? In his mercy and kindness, he always meets us where we're at. He always meets us right there. We see, that, we see that over and over and over again in his ministry. People come to him with their physical infirmities. People come to him with their social anxieties, with their emotional and relational challenges. And Jesus heals them. Jesus restores them. And Jesus helps them. And some he even raises from the dead we find that that's not all that Jesus does. He comes to do more. You know, as Jesus meets people where they're at, there's also this call to reorientation. A call to 
a new way of looking at things. He doesn't leave us exactly where we're at and where we come to him. We see it in this scene when he puts, uh, when he tells Peter that he's going to be tested. In that verse, verse 32, what do we see? It says, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. The Greek word here translated as turn back in the NIV is where we get the idea of repentance. You see, when we turn around or we turn back, we find that we fix our eyes on a new target. When we really turn back, we find that we can't actually look at what we used to look at. There's a new focus of attention that captures us and reorients our lives. You know, this winter, Julie and I were able to take the kids to Colorado to visit her brother and family. And there we had a chance to go skiing for the first time in five years. Well, actually, it's one skiing. It's snowboarding here. And the kids grew up, you know, learning how to ski in, in Vancouver. And on this trip, they wanted to try snowboarding. So Julie and I spent two days teaching them. And there's this principle that I've learned in riding a motorcycle that has become a life axiom for me, applicable to many situations, including snowboarding. I kept telling them over and over again, Evan, Ashley, look to where you want to go, not at what you want to avoid. Look to where you want to go, not at what you want to avoid. Now, if you've ever had to, if you ever tried to learn to ski or snowboard, most of the time you're making your way across the slope, right? And then you turn and then you make your way across the other way. But there comes a point when you make your way across the slope that you have to turn and your snowboard or your skis are pointing straight down the hill. And when they do that, you begin to pick up speed. And you don't want to do that when you're learning. The goal is to look across the mountain because that's where you want to go again, rather than down the slope, which is where your body, which is where you're bored, which is where gravity, which is where your instinct, everything is telling you you're going down there. But the moment you look your eyes down there, that's where you're going, instead of across, which is where you want to go. And that axiom, I find, is applicable not just to snowboarding or skiing or riding a motorcycle or riding a bike. It's helpful for our spiritual health in our relational health, and our emotional health. We want to avoid being hurt. We want to avoid obstacles to our comfort. We want to avoid threats. But sometimes we are so focused on avoiding those situations, our eyes get locked on them, and we end up exactly where we don't want to be. Instead, look to where you want to go, not at what you want to avoid. You know, in Peter's case, he had misplaced attentions. He was looking in the directions that he thought he wanted to go. But Jesus had something else in mind. Peter thought Jesus was here to lead Israel into a time of prosperity and success. Peter had a view of Jesus that needed to be corrected. Peter needed his lenses removed. And so how did Jesus do that? Verses 20, 33 and 34. I tell you today, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. It's through this test of Peter's denial. Think about this for a moment. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him. Jesus knew that Peter would have to pass through this. And yet Jesus, in all of his divinity, all of his power to change that for Peter, doesn't stop it happening from happening to Peter. In fact, Jesus even tells how 
the adversary. That's what, what is translated Satan in our Bibles. But this is a side note. It's not a title, Satan. It's not a proper name. It's simply the definite uh, article, the Satan, which, is, which means the adversary. So it's not some evil figure. I mean, yes, he's an evil figure, but it's not like some devil in horns character. It's, there's an adversary to our faith, and that's a reality. And anyways, back to it. Satan has given, asked for permission to put Peter and the disciples through this test. And following Jesus, and even being called out as Jesus's, one of Jesus' leaders, doesn't prevent Peter from passing through this test. And even more, though Peter is told about the test, though he knows how it's going to go down, Peter vehemently, vehemently denies that it will happen. But it still happens. This had to happen in order for God to do God's work in Peter's life. His rejection of Jesus, his denial three times, and the resultant shame that he experiences are all difficult things that no one would choose for themselves. But they are all used to reorient Peter to see Jesus more clearly as he is meant to be seen. You know, what lenses about ourselves or about the world we live in might Jesus be inviting us to remove and reorient towards him? What storylines are we living by in our lives that Jesus is perhaps inviting us to see differently? You know, some of us have been living storylines of material success and prosperity. That we think God is going to help us with. Others of us are living according to a storyline of physical or mental or relational health that dominates our lives and our consciousness. And others of us are living according to a storyline of moral uprightness. We really think that we're better people. We're more theologically accurate. Or we're more of an ally for the marginalized than we might actually think ourselves to be. Others of us are just trying to avoid ugly and negative situations because our past experience with them casts this long shadow into our lives and we think into the future. Could Jesus be inviting us to reorient our lives differently? Inviting us to look to where we want to go rather than what we want to avoid. Maybe it would be helpful for us to see what Jesus sees rather than what we only see for ourselves and what others might see in us. You know, as the evening proceeds, Jesus is betrayed in the garden he's pray he, he, as he's praying and he's arrested and he's taken to the home of the chief priest for a trial. And Peter is following along watching and wondering what is going to happen to his beloved leader. And along the way, Peter is seen. Notice all these seeing and looking words in this final section of the chapter. You know, in verse 56, Peter is seen by a servant girl in the courtyard of the high priest's home. In verse 58, he is seen by a second person. And then a third in verse 59 who not only sees Peter, but recognizes Peter's Galilean accent. He says, you're, you're with this Jesus, aren't you? 
to which he denies. Three times Peter is seen, and three times Peter denies his association with Jesus. Peter is trying to be inconspicuous here, but he's also very curious. He wants to find out what's going to happen to Jesus. But at the same time, his denials signal that he doesn't want to be seen with Jesus. Know anyone who's like that? Sure. It was dangerous for Peter to be associated with Jesus at this point. But there's something else going on deeper, I think, for Peter. Jesus uses Peter's denial to help Peter see his own life differently and his relationship with and his expectations of Jesus differently. In Peter's rejection of Jesus, Jesus is reorienting how Peter sees himself and Jesus is helping Peter to accept a part of who he is that he has not seen in light of Jesus. And when we come to the final verses of this text, what happens? Verses 61 and 62. Then the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Now, Peter did not only need to see Jesus differently, he needed to see himself differently. He wanted to see himself, he needed to see himself as Jesus saw him. And it was through this gaze of Jesus, locking eyes on him, that Peter finds himself convicted and find, he realizes that he needs to reorient himself. You know, Jesus looks, locks his eyes with Peter and something happens to Peter. And Peter responds by weeping bitterly. We don't know all that Peter felt between that look and the moment that he be, the tears began to fall. I think it's safe to say that he feels some shame for rejecting Jesus, exactly as Jesus called it. And maybe he feels it for feeling overconfident in his faith and loyalty. But I think there is more to this gaze than that. The gaze of Jesus here convicts Peter, but it does not reject Peter. The gaze of Jesus conjures up shame for Peter, but not because of who Peter is, but because perhaps Peter fails to see who Jesus is, who Jesus really is. And I wonder if Peter's shame comes from underestimating the depth of Jesus' love for him. I wonder if Jesus' shame, I mean, Peter's shame comes from recalling Jesus' words to him that Peter would uh, still be used by Jesus in spite of his denial of Jesus. That Jesus would still use Peter to strengthen the disciples. And not only that, that Jesus would still use Peter as he promised and called him earlier that he would build his church on Peter's life. Can you imagine the love and the purpose and the forgiveness and the hope that comes in that? Peter realizes just how true Jesus' words are and how trustworthy Jesus is. And at the heart of Peter's denial is the fear of the worst shame, which is final rejection. He is afraid to be seen as one of Jesus' followers because he's afraid of being rejected by the people around him. 
And when he begins to see himself as Jesus sees him, he experiences conviction, but that is wrapped in God's love. It's wrapped in God's forgiveness. It's wrapped in God's purpose for Peter. Now here, living in you know, 2022, we don't get to gaze into Jesus' eyes as Peter did back then. But we do get to gaze into God's love and forgiveness and purpose revealed in what happens to Jesus over the next few hours from this scene. All the way to the cross, we find that Jesus experiences all the shame, all the rejection that no human would ever choose for themselves. Yet, Jesus does. And he carries the full burden of rejection that comes as a consequence of our sin. He carries the rejection not only of people around him as everyone deserts him this night, but the rejection of life itself. Because death is the consequence of sin. And in Jesus' rejection, we find God does the most amazing miracle. God offers God's acceptance to all who would believe in him. Now, as we begin Holy Week and we reflect on Jesus' rejection, let us bring all of our fears of rejection before the one who was ultimately rejected for us. For there, we find all of our misplaced attentions are revealed. And there we find all of our discolored lenses can be removed and we begin, can begin to see Jesus, but also see ourselves as Jesus sees us. We have a new storyline to look upon. We are loved. We are forgiven. We are accepted. And we are set free from all fear of rejection when we put our hands in, uh, put, put our lives in Jesus' hands. This is really good news. So believe it and live in it. Amen.